Oh, there it is. Okay, we got a red. We got a red light. <laughs> All right, that's good. There was a URL bug on Sunday morning, and so that's why we couldn't get it to work. All right, we have. Uh, we're going to start today with Psalm 119, verse 121. If I can find that. What's that? Ayin. Yeah, which is means I and a couple other things. Anyway, I in Psalm one nineteen one twenty one. It says, "I have done justice and righteousness. Do not lead me to my oppressors. Be surety for your servant for good. Do not let the proud oppress me. My eyes fail seeking from seeking your salvation and your righteous word. Deal with your servant according to your mercy and teach me your statutes." I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. It is time for you to act, O Lord, for they have regarded your law as void. Therefore, I love your commandments more than gold, yes, than fine gold. Therefore, all your precepts concerning all things I consider to be right. I hate every false way. Ah, let's see. We'll go ahead and open in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for bringing us together today. Thank you for uh, the beautiful weather you've given us lately. It's been marvelous, and uh, we don't want to complain about anything. A little rain would be nice at some point, but uh, until it comes, we're very thankful for this beautiful weather. And the uh, flowers on the trees are just going crazy here in Sarasota, and I pray that uh, anybody that comes down here will enjoy their time and uh, the blessing of being in this beautiful location that we're so graced with. And Lord, uh, we commit this uh, service, this uh, Bible study to you, asking that you would help us to handle your word properly and to uh, answer any questions correctly that may arise, and just that you would be glorified through the study of this beautiful, precious treasure you've given us. And uh, please also remember those that are uh, in distress or that are having trials or troubles or that are traveling or just be with your people, O oh God, and uh, help us to know that you are that ever-present help in our times of need, our times of trouble. We love you, and we praise you, and we exalt you in Jesus' name. Amen. Has anybody here heard from Adele? She left on Sunday, and uh, anybody heard from her? I haven't, so I'm wondering if she's doing okay, but it sure was nice having her here for a week or two. And uh, let's see Psalms here. Psalms 40 and 6, very present help in trouble. Yep. That's what the little voice talking to the band Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. <laughs> and in the cookie jar. That's... His mama said you shouldn't have been in a place of temptation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that's it. Okay, we're in uh, Romans chapter 3 still, and we're all the way down to verse 25. And uh, there's no point in starting out with uh, verse 25 without going back to the beginning of the paragraph. So we'll start in verse 21, which says, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In verse 25, whom God has set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. 
Now, does anybody have something different than the oh, word yeah. propitiation? What do you have there? Um, hold on. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. Sacrifice of atonement. Something else? Mine has whom God hath publicly displayed. I okay, publicly displayed. Does anybody have the word mercy seat there? No. Okay, well, uh, we'll, okay. Go, we'll get into it in a second. Before I get into analyzing that first, I want to say this now while it's still on my mind. Has anybody found out the time of that movie yet? Seven. Seven o'clock. So that means um, we need to stop. Uh, we normally stop at 630. We'll stop at, uh, you can make it there in an hour. So six o'clock, um, say five to six next week, or should we make it 545? Oh, that should be. Okay, five to six. Okay, hey, how are we doing there, Rick? Good to have you there. All right, so next week. John 2-2 is the propitiation. Propitiation. That's what my little note says. That's right, and I'm going to talk about that in a second. I just want to make sure that the people online know that next week our Bible study is only going to be one hour instead of one hour and a half because we've got a Christian movie in town for one night. It's on Bible study night, and so uh, it'll be just a, a few minutes shorter on uh, our Bible class next week so everybody can get out of here and make it to that movie. Okay, 325. Um, continuing from the previous verse, Paul says that the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth. The term in Greek is proetheto, and it signifies a public display of some sort. I think you had that. Okay, there you go. Um, in the case of Jesus, it was the cross of Calvary where he was exposed to public humiliation and death. This wasn't done in a back alley where no one could witness it, but it was done in the public setting of the people of the law, the temple of God, and in the presence of the angels who ministered to him. God set forth his son, his own son, for all to see and understand the action for what it was, a propitiation by his blood. Now, a verse just came to mind before I get into what the propitiation is. Is um, uh, it, it was done publicly. We know it was done publicly. And let me see if I can find this verse very quickly. It would be in the Gospel of Luke, certainly. And it's after the resurrection. So it would be in Luke, um, let's see here, um, 6 error, darkness 24. And um, let's see here. What kind of conversation? And they said to him, what things? Okay, um, uh, I'm going to go to... Luke 24, verse 18, Then one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? Right? Everybody knew. And the, the odd thing about it is that the one person that pretends he doesn't know is the one person that everything surround, is centered around. Uh, that's but, what uh, Paul said to Agrippa. This thing wasn't done. This in wasn't done in a corner. <laughs> that's exactly right. And so that confirms that first part of uh of uh of whom god set forth and uh it was done in a public display or proeteto okay now we'll get into the propitiation the term propitiation is of immense importance here in this verse okay i talked about this i think last sunday during the prophecy update maybe it was last thursday during the um uh, hi ladies Maybe it was last Thursday during the uh, Bible class. I can't remember. It was just within the past couple of days I mentioned this, is that people say that the feasts of the Lord are divided into two parts. You have the feasts of the Lord, the spring feasts, and those were fulfilled at Christ's first advent, and then the fall feasts, which would be, what are the fall feasts of the Lord? There's three of them. Yom Teruah, which is Rosh Hashanah, the, the Feast of Trumpets, or uh, as nowadays we say, the head of the year, Rosh Hashanah. Then you have the second one, which is Yom Kippur, Kippur right? The Day of Atonement. And then finally you have Sukkot, or Tabernacles. That's right. So you've got those three. They say, oh, those are all to be fulfilled in the future. 
couple things about that. I said this. It was either during the Sunday or Thursday, but that is a heresy. That is saying that Christ did not fulfill the law completely. The law is fulfilled. It is done completely. People want to argue over this. All they need to do is look at the New Testament because the New Testament tells us the fulfillment of every feast. The feast of the Day of Atonement is right here in this verse that we're looking at right now. It says here, the term propitiation is of immense importance. The Greek word is, does anybody know the Greek word for this? Well, it's a word that most people should know just when you hear it, hilasterion. You've heard that before, the hilasterion, okay? Where does that word come from? Does anybody know where that word comes from? Greek. It's Greek, that's correct. Okay, I'll give it to you. I thought somebody here might know this, and it's this important to remember this, because if somebody says the fall feasts are yet to be fulfilled, call them heretic Herman, and explain to them that this is their uh, this is their schooling right now. Okay, it is a sin offering. Hilasterion is a sin offering or a covering of sin by blood, which is shed. Its purpose is to bring together parties at odds with each other and to restore a favorable relationship to make things propitious again. That's why we say propitiation is because it makes things propitious or happy, pleasing between two once uh, opposed parties. Okay. This word is used only one other time in the New Testament in Hebrews 9.5. It's a different word that you're speaking of, but they use the same terminology, okay, where it is translated as Hebrews 9.5, mercy seat, okay? That's why I asked that. Did anybody have that in theirs? Okay, as a matter of fact, let's read Hebrews 9.5, and then I'm going to explain this, where this actually comes from elsewhere, and the light will come on, and you'll say, oh, okay, now I have something I can defend with. Hebrews 9 verse 5 um, says... 11, 10, 9. It says here, um, uh, yes, that's it. Verse 4, we'll start at when, uh, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the ta- tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the hilasterion, the mercy seat, the place of propitiation. Hello, ma'am, how are you today? Um <laughs> Look at her all happy. Okay, so um, we have, uh, that's that's Hebrews 9, verse 5. It's the only other time that this particular word, propitiation, is used, translated as mercy seat. Because what happens at the mercy seat? The, the high priest would go in once a year. He'd take the blood. He'd sprinkle it in the area. And that would be the Day of Atonement, the Day of Covering. And it would make a propitious relationship between the Lord and the people of Israel for another year. What yes. About, he says he's the propitiation for our sins, but not ours. Yes, but that's a different word. It's a, oh, it's, it, a different it, it's, word. it's a variant of it. It's it's very close, but it's not this particular word. It would be like, you know, um, we say, um, you know, you've got hilasterion, then you've got... Whatever. Another word that's very closely associated. Okay. It means the same thing, but this particular word means the mercy seat. Okay. But yes, it, it, that, it's a very close word. They're tied together. So you can use that, but it's not this word. Only these two. Okay. Um, so uh, Hebrews 9, 5, I just read you that. It's mercy seat. It's the place where mercy is granted. Okay. It is the same word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the LXX, which is the Septuagint. Okay. In the translation of the Old Testament, Exodus 25, verse 17, which I'll read you right here. And we've all gone through Exodus. You know exactly what the symbolism is. Every single picture points to Christ. Exodus 25, 17 says, um, shall I back it up? Oh, you shall make a mercy seat, a hilasterion. That word was used by the translators into the Greek translation of the Old Testament 
into the uh, the mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits shall be its length and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work and you shall make them at the two ends of the illustrion, the mercy seat. In other words, the mercy seat, which is the place of propitiation on the day of atonement is fulfilled in Christ. The fall feast, the day of atonement is done. <coughs> Paul is very careful. He details which feasts are fulfilled. John details a couple of them also. Go ahead. You got something on your mind. Literally, it says uh, pro propitiation. No, P-I-T-A-T-I-T-O-O-R-Y. Propitiatory. That's right. That would be the sacrifice itself, the propitiatory sacrifice in the place of propitiation, which makes things propitious. In other words, they're just variations of the same word, okay? okay? Just like we would say administer, administrate, administrating, administration. So you have the propitiatory sacrifice would be Christ. The place of propitiation is the, the mercy seat. And so you've got the... So some people will actually say that the mercy seat is the propitiatory. And the reason why they'll do that is because the mercy seat pictures what? Christ's body. Remember, remember when we uh, looked at we've looked at this before. When the woman looked into the tomb, she saw here's Christ's place where he was lying, and she said, "She." It says he saw in the Gospel of John. She looked in and she saw what? An angel sitting at one end and the other, and it's a picture of them looking down at the place of propitiation, the propitiatory where Christ's body had laid. John perfectly describes it with her looking in, and he makes, well, let's read there. Why am I telling you? Why don't we just read it again? This is all tied into what Christ did, and he is our propitiatory, which means that the mercy seat was a picture of it. Fulfilled. The feasts of the Lord are done. People that want to, to reinsert the law and say, we have to do this and that, they haven't studied the Bible. They haven't looked at these things to understand that Christ is the fulfillment. Not a partial fulfillment, but the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. Anybody ever heard, uh, read uh, Jonah chapter 4 and wondered what it's about? Read it. It's all about Jesus. You got it in your hand there, chief. Read that tonight. I hope you enjoy it. Okay. Um, so we've got John 20. Where are we? Um, uh, let's see here. 20 seeking. Okay. Uh, look, oh, here it is right here. We got uh, John 20 verse 11. But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain, the propitiatory. That's where his body is the place of propitiation. That's why they use that word. So you've got the, the different variations of the same word, propitiation, propitious, propitiatory. They all are centering on the same thing. Okay, so that is John confirming that he is that place of propitiation, that the day of atonement is fulfilled in his shed blood, his laying down in that tomb, his blood seeping into the earth, cleansing the earth, cleansing the center of all of his vile sins. That is what this is speaking of. And that is what Paul is now confirming by using this particular word from the Old Testament, which is again used one more time in Hebrews. Everything ties together in Christ every single thing. Can we help you? <laughs> it is. It's easy to go. All right. So we'll, we'll go on there. Um, I'm going to start with that paragraph again. It is the same word which is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Exodus 25, 17 and elsewhere. It's used quite a few times when describing the Hebrew word kaporet 
or mercy seat. And do you remember, does anybody remember the name of the veil that stood in front of the mercy seat? There was a play on words there. Anybody, it was very similar to kaporet, it's paroket. It's the same letters and they're just reversed and it, God was making a picture of what was going on. On this side of the paroket, there's, there's a, a enmity, there's a fracture between God and man. But on the other side, there's peace with God. And the veil is that picture. And what does it say the veil is in the book of Hebrews? His body. His body is the veil. Every single thing that you see in the, the tabernacle, if you haven't watched that series, you should go back and watch it. Because every single, every word of the details of the ark, of the mercy seat, of the, the veil, the paroquet, the table of showbread, the um, menorah, the the altar of incense going outside of the holy place. You've got the uh, the laver. You've got the uh, altar of sacrifice. Every word of every single detail points to Jesus. Even the dimensions of the hangings that are on the side that border the entire thing. Everything pointed to Jesus. The color of them, what they're hanging on. Does anybody remember what the hangings were hanging on all up and down the sides of in the front of the uh, silver? They were on silver sockets, but the, they were actually hanging from silver hooks as well. Our redemption, pictured in the white hangings, is is on silver, which is a picture of redemption. So our righteousness, I'm sorry, is hanging on silver, redemption. Everything about it, everything points to Christ, every single deed. I'm so excited about it because I'm remembering these, these Exodus sermons now and how, what a treasure. Wait till we get into Leviticus. You know, it seems tedious. It, I'm not going to get into it. You're gonna love Leviticus. You're gonna you're gonna love it. Um, uh, okay, so the kaporet, the mercy seat. The mercy seat is where the covering of blood was applied to the ark of Co the covenant on the day of atonement, fulfilled in Christ. Fulfilled. Don't let people tell you that there's something coming in Christ other than something that is outside of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is fulfilled. We're waiting for new stuff. We're waiting for new stuff. Okay, we're waiting for the rapture, which is described. By who, Jeremiah? Paul. By Paul, that's right. And it was long after Christ's ascension. It wasn't something that was just described. People say, here's something, uh, no man knoweth the day and the hour, right? And they say, well, that's speaking of the rapture. That has nothing to do with the rapture. It has nothing to do with the rapture. How do we know that? Because Paul said, behold, I show you a something already revealed by Jesus. No, he says, I reveal, I show you a mystery. A mystery means when it's leaving the ink of his pen, it's the first time it's been recorded. When did he write 1 Corinthians? Long after Jesus' ascension, long after it. He is revealing the mystery. It can't be speaking about the rapture in Jesus' words. It has nothing to do with it. It has to do with something else. But everybody wants to get excited about something and they take these verses out of context and as soon as you do, you have made a Pretext. That's right. You've made a lie out of a verse, and you can't do that. The context is that the rapture is a mystery revealed by Paul. Okay, we'll go on. Um, uh, and the reason why I keep harping on this is because we have to make sure that we understand that the law is fulfilled. Every type and shadow, every type and shadow of Christ's work is fulfilled. Before we go on any further, I want to do this again because you always get this, this question. I know some of you do. And you want to remember these verses, so I'm going to spend just a couple minutes and I'm going to read them to you one at a time, make a note of this, and if somebody asks you, they say, well, the law isn't fulfilled or a part of the law isn't fulfilled, then we're going to uh, have these verses ready for them, okay? So make notes. This is the fulfillment of the law, the ending of the law. The first is Hebrews 7, verse 12. 
Okay, write that down. For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of law. law. That's right. So you have a change in the priesthood. Is the priesthood of Aaron still in effect? No. Christ is our priest. He is our high priest. He is our mediator. The law is changed. That means that the law is obsolete. Okay, we'll go on. That's Hebrews 7, 18. Verse, I'm sorry, that was uh, 7, 12. Now we're going to go on to 7, 18. Write that down. For on the one hand, there is an annulling. Does anybody know what it, to annul means? Do away with. To do away with, to make void. It is done. On the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment, which is speaking of the law of Moses, because of its weakness and unprofitableness. We're going to go through that in detail in the book of Leviticus. Why is the law weak? Why is it un unprofitable? And we're going to see that. It's, it is annulled. It says it explicitly. That's the second time now. We're going to go on into Hebrews chapter 8, and we'll go to verse 13. Okay, write this down so you have it. In that he says a new covenant, citing the Old Testament. Um, let me go back to verse 12. For I will be merciful to their unrighteous deeds and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Um, oh, I'm sorry. It goes back on new covenant anyway. Uh, behold, the days are coming. This is verse 8 of chapter 8. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Now, verse 13. In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. It is done. It is annulled. It is obsolete. It is, um, what was the first one I said? It is um, uh, by necessity, there's a changing of the law. So now we've got four times. And there's at least eight or nine more times that I'm not going to give you, which are implicit, not explicit. But they're in here in the book of Hebrews. Here's another one from Hebrews 10, and we're going to go to verse 9. Verse 10, 9. Remember this. I'll write this down. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. That's Christ speaking to the Father. He takes away the first, meaning the law. He takes it away that he may establish the second. That is explicit. It is taken away. The law is still in effect until what? No, it's done. It is done. Okay? And those are from the book of Hebrews. People love to diminish Paul. They'll say, well, Paul is, you know, and the Hebrew Roots movement is famous for this. Take them to the book of Hebrews to show them that. Because they all claim the Hebrews, oh, yeah, that's the book. They don't even know what it says. Those are explicit. And there's one more that Paul does write. And you might as well just give it to him. Actually, there are about 10 more that Paul writes. But it's Hebrews 2.14. I'm sorry, Colossians 2.14. The law is nailed to the cross. It's done. His body was nailed to the cross. He died on the cross. The law died on the cross. That's what we're to see there, okay? So, and all the symbolism of the Old Testament shows us this again and again. Jonah chapter 4, for example, the law is done, right? Okay, so we've got that. We've got those verses. If you're at home and you didn't write those verses down, you can go watch this again because you need to remember at least those four or five verses from Hebrews Colossians 2.14 as well, and then, of course, um, uh, Paul says it in various ways. We're not under law, but we're under grace, etc. He writes it again and again, many, many times in the New Testament. But people want to dismiss Paul, take him to Hebrews, which nobody dismisses, and it's right there, okay? Explicit. Okay, so now that we understand that, we understand that the law is done, that these things are fulfilled, that the Day of Atonement is what Paul is writing about, the completion of it, the finishing of it, Okay? The mercy seat where the covering of blood was applied to the Ark of the Covenant on the Day of Atonement and which restored felicity or a propitious relationship between God and his people for another year. Okay, but the Day of Atonement, like 
all of the Bible required something more than rote ritual, right? You just go down and you do the ritual and there's nothing in your heart, it means nothing. You take the sacrifice down to the temple and you say, here's my sacrifice, and what does the Lord rebuke them for? Again, in Isaiah, again, in Malachi, throughout the Old Testament, he keeps rebuking them for having a sacrifice without the heart or bringing a marred sacrifice. He says, I'm a great king. You wouldn't do this to your governor, but you're doing it to me. And so if you're doing something in rote ritual, think of, you don't want to pick on him too much tonight, but Catholicism. Some of us came out of Catholicism here, or, you know, I was at the Episcopal Church, which is Catholicism light, but it's the same thing. It's, you go in there, stand up, say the Nicene Creed, sit down, you're up and down 15 times, it's all rote, it's all ritual, and it means diddly, right? It doesn't mean anything, because there's, you're just repeating stuff. You're not, you're not in any way having a relationship with the Lord where you should be on your face saying, Lord, I'm so sorry for the week behind me. You know, I'm so thankful for the food you've given me. I'm so thankful for the wife you've blessed me with. Where is she? She's back there hiding, isn't she? Oh, there she is. She's hiding over there. And the mother that gave me birth and all of these wonderful people that I fellowship with. That's what the Lord wants to hear, right? That's what he wants. He doesn't want to hear us say the Nicene Creed up and down and up and down, and it means nothing. So this is what the Day of Atonement is. It says um, it required something more than ritual. It required... Begins with F, ends with eighth. Faith. Faith. There you go. Okay. It required faith that it would accomplish what was intended. As a demonstration of that faith, the people were told to do something on the Day of Atonement. Fast and confess. And if they didn't, they weren't forgiven. It's that's made it's implied in the something I want to say about uh eight or nine weeks ago I was talking about the Day of Atonement. I says that the people went down to Jerusalem. And the doctor here challenged me on that, and he was right. It does not say that. The people could go down to Jerusalem, but it was not a pilgrim feast. Okay, the pilgrim feast was actually um, uh, Sukkot, tabernacles they had to go down there. But the Day of Atonement, they were not required to, but they were required to not work. They were required to fast, and they were required to confess. And if they just stayed at home and didn't do those things, the Lord was looking on their heart. There was no salvation for those people. There was no atonement because they held the Lord's law and his day of grace in contempt, okay? Same thing going to church and, you know, Catholicism or Episcopal Church or whatever. You're holding the Lord in contempt when you go to church and you don't mean anything with it. Why even go? You know, if you want to stay home, if you want to uh, not focus on the Lord, stay home. You can do exactly the same thing there, but you can have a lot more fun. You can do it in your pajamas or something, right? (laughs) So, there is something about having a heart for the Lord. You, t- you told me something about two weeks ago, which I, I, I never thought of because I, I wasn't raised in this um, environment, but you said that it used to be that they, people would go in the evening on Sunday as well, and they'd have an evening service on Sunday. And he said he loved that. It was something that he looked forward to, and it was a joy for him to do that. Well, I wasn't raised in that time, type of an environment, but... When you said that, and you said, I kind of missed that, but now I have something different. And it doesn't matter what he has. He has something he does every Sunday evening, which he enjoys, which is church for him. Reading and, Charlie's message. Uh, well, you didn't have to say that. But yeah, he, because he doesn't attend this church, he attends this church on Sunday evening when he reads the, the sermons. And um, any comment on last week's sermon? Any comments? Top-notch. Thank you. He he always gives me these emails. He always gives me these emails, and he critiques my sermons. And uh, 
I was very grateful for what he said this week. It really, it really touched me. So anyway, I, I, I have to, I told him when he walked in, we were talking earlier. I said, I just, I was so excited about doing Jonah chapter four. I literally almost couldn't walk in the door last week because of the treasure that is in that book. The book of Jonah, but the funny thing is that if you start with just chapter four, you miss all of this building up to it because everything, remember in chapter one, where it was talking about, I, I, I explained the name of Jonah. It comes from a certain word, which means dove, but it's also tied into wine. And I got into this long discussion about wine and why would I do that? The reason why is because it pertains to what's going on in chapter two and then chapter three, how God is merging these things together like wine. Everything is being pictured, and unless you understand those things, chapter 4, I don't think, maybe I'm wrong, but if somebody just clicked on chapter 4 and watched it, they'd say, oh, well, that's pretty cool, but I don't think they'd have the, the, the basis for what is being led up to, which is a really marvelous, I was, I did not know those things, I want you to know, until I started studying the book of Jonah, I had no idea, right, and without uh, talking to Sergio and him prompting me with things and me prompting him with things, but the Lord is good. He gives us wonderful insights. But and, your summary just was fantastic well, with all of it. Okay, now my ears are getting red, so don't say anymore. <laughs> I just, I really enjoyed no, that particular. No, it's saying that. It'll make more people want uh, Well, that's okay. If they do, they do, and I'll be blessed because I, I want people to know the word. And, uh, oh, I, 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 I'm excited about Leviticus, but until we get to Leviticus 16, I'm just going to be on pins and needles because you talk about a, a passage in the Bible, which is oh. amazing. Leviticus 16 is it. I'm going to tell you, it's like how I feel about Jonah 4. It, it really is amazing. So we'll get there, and uh, it won't take long, maybe a year or two. A year? We're going to go pretty quickly through Leviticus because the, 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 the rituals of the sacrifices in 1, 2, 3, 4, I think I'm already up to typing chapter 7 next week. So we're, in other words, we're going a whole chapter at a time sometimes because the rituals are the same, and so there's no point in repeating it. As long as you pay attention in each one, you just get the details that are different. And so, um, I, you know, it's like when we did the Ark of the Covenant and then they built the Ark of the Covenant. There was no point in repeating everything. So you just give the details and say, if you didn't get that, go back and watch that. So um, it'll go quickly, but you'll really enjoy Leviticus 16. Okay, we'll go on. Um, it required faith. Likewise, the propitiation God offers through Jesus' shed blood is through faith. It's the same thing. Old Testament and New it, you know, people like to say it was works plus faith in the Old Testament. No, it was never works plus faith. They were required to do things, but if they didn't do them, they could get the same salvation as the people that did. Hence, David was forgiven for doing things that he should not have done. Okay, it was never works plus faith. It was always faith that saved. The works were mandated, but it wasn't something that brought them any closer to the Lord. Okay, um, it, it is through faith. It is faith in what God has done in this final sacrifice of which the temple sacrifice is only prefigured. We're going to see that in every single chapter. Chapter one, the burnt offering. Chapter two, the uh, grain offering. Chapter three, the uh, peace offering. Chapter four, the uh, sin offering. Each one, every detail points to Jesus. Every single detail. He is the fulfillment of all of them. Not some of them, not some of them coming at the end of the age. It is done in him. All of it. Every single detail. God has given us these special treasures precious words which are like treasure in a box to show us Jesus in every single sacrifice, how it leads to him. So um, uh, it's a little brutal. I mean, it, it's our sensibilities in modern day as we go to the store and we buy meat and we don't think about where it came from. They actually saw 
You know what I'm saying? So it's, it's, it, and we're going to talk about those things, but it, it's reality. It is what the Lord ordained for the people of Israel. Okay. Um, uh, Jesus' life was given to, as Paul says in this verse, demonstrate his righteousness, God's righteousness. Christ's life was given to demonstrate his righteousness. This phrase is pointing directly to the voluntary giving of his life, Jesus' life, as the means of obtaining this propitiation. In this offering, the sins of the people are removed from them, and they are also removed from God's presence. It's not just a one-way thing. It's both ways, okay, it, from God's presence. It is as if they never occurred. That's why when Paul writes the words, not counting men's sins against them, thank you, it's as if they never occurred. When we sin now, the slate is completely clean before it even happens. So much for losing your salvation. Once again, if you think the words of what Paul is saying through, you can come to no other conclusion that we are eternally saved. God is not counting men's sins against them. Instead, the things that we do wrong are counted for rewards and losses. Thank you. There, you should know that. I know. Why didn't you work that out? He's doing a, a thing on rewards and losses right now before church each week. And that is what our deeds and misdeeds are counted for now. God is not counting men's sins against them. Okay? It has nothing to do with that anymore. It is as if our slate is completely clean. And that shows the hugely gracious nature of God by an act of faith in what Christ has done. Remember against them no more. Remember against them no more. Isaiah, I will make I will take your sins and cast them as far as the east, east is from the west. And we explained why he said that and not north and south. If you didn't if you didn't hear that, or did, does everybody understand why he said east and west? You do? Do you? Do you remember that one? You don't. I'm going to tell you really quickly then. You'll understand this and you'll never forget it again. When you are in an airplane and you fly to the North Pole, what happens when you go over the North Pole? You start south. That's right. The compass changes and you go south. The compass actually changes. There is a North and a South Pole. When you're going east to west and you go around, does the compass ever change? Never. No. There's no change in it. So now you know the Lord knew this thousands of years ago, 2,700 years ago, when that was written in that psalm, that there is a north, and the Bible was validated not by saying the obvious points on the compass, but by saying the ones that most people don't use as references, that we say north and south, because we know it gets colder, and so there must be something up there. Whereas if you walk along east and west, the, the temperature is always the same wherever you're at. So the, the, the Bible is a self-validating tool, an instrument of God showing his glory. Okay, so we'll go on. Um, uh, Jesus' life was given to demonstrate his righteousness. Um, uh, did I say that? Where was I? Yeah, it is as if they never occurred. Complete and total restoration is accomplished through the cross of Jesus. Complete and total. Complete and total. There's nothing incomplete in what Christ did for us, and there is nothing lacking as far as the totality or the, the absolute nature of it. It is complete and it is total. We are saved, we are saved forever, and we can never lose that salvation. I just don't understand how people can look at what Christ did and say, I've got to do something else, or I need to do so keep doing something else, because all that does is diminish the glory of what Christ did for us and the gracious, the infinitely gracious nature of God, because God's grace does not, what? It doesn't increase, that's right, it doesn't change. It doesn't increase, it doesn't decrease. God is grace, God is mercy. 
And so for him to say, I am bestowing on you grace, if he takes it away, then that has changed. His grace is always available. It's we who actuate it by receiving Jesus Christ, and it is done. Okay? Eternal salvation. All right. Um, let's see here. Now that the sin has been removed, now that the sin has been removed in us, the ungodliness of the sinner is, as you just said, remembered no more, and God's wrath at the sin has been appeased in his punishment and death. We've talked about this before. For every offense, there has to be a penalty. All right? If you drive too fast and you get caught, there's a penalty for that. You have to pay that. If you can't pay that debt, I'm doing 172 miles an hour in my Maserati down the, my dad's Maserati because if I had a Maserati, I could afford the payment. But I'm d driving dad's Maserati. It's uh, going to be $1,000 and I have to pay it or I have to go to jail, right? doesn't matter where that $1,000 comes from. Somebody can step in and say, my lawyer can say, I've got that in my back pocket. You know, here, here's $1,000. I'll pay the fine for you. The law is satisfied. Christ's blood satisfies every, everything that is opposed to us. Not just some things. Everything. Okay, it is done. Amen. Eternal salvation. What? Amen. Amen. Thank you. All right. He is the one that took our place. All right. The ungodliness of the sinner is remembered no more, and God's death at the sin has been, uh, God's wrath at the sin has been appeased in his punishment and death. Okay, the blood of Jesus accomplishes all of this. It is a suitable offering for the sins of the world. And because of this, Paul continues on by stating that in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Okay, everybody got that? What this means is that the sins prior to the cross of Jesus Christ are dealt with at the cross, as well as those that look back on it, okay? The people of God, the Israelites that were in Messiah, they were in the covenant people, they were redeemed out of the land of bondage. When they sacrificed those sacrifices, it was only looking forward to Jesus. How do we know, know that? The book of Hebrews says that the blood of, no, the blood of bulls and goats, Blood of bull, go ahead, blood of bulls and goats can, that's right, can never take away sin. So we know that it had to only be prefiguring the work of Christ. They were in Messiah awaiting Messiah. And so God in his forbearance, let me read that again, God in his forbearance um, had passed over the sins that were previously committed. He was granting them grace on the Day of Atonement for another year, but the sins were not actually forgiven until Christ's final and complete sacrifice. The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. In Christ, they are taken away. They were in Christ positionally awaiting their Messiah if they had faith. If they didn't, as we said, then they weren't forgiven. They were the people that were, you know, God judged all the way through the Old Testament, rebuking them all the way through the Old Testament, and yet there are other people that were living in faith, and God rewarded them because of their faithfulness. A lot of them are listed in Hebrews chapter 11, the Hall of Fame of Faith, okay? So, um... You uh, said someplace about he winked at it. Yes, you, you brought that up one time. It's a different translation yeah. though I have, but the word is winked, and you brought that up, and you noted the guy, uh, Zoeotis. Yeah. And I don't remember that verse in, uh, but it, he looked, overlooked, oh, yeah. I think, but the translation you had is he winked at it. Yeah. In other words, he kind of shut his eyes, and he, he passed by their sins yeah. until the time of Christ. Right. Same idea, but yes, Wink is, is, I was surprised to see that translation, but what interesting. Um, what this means, okay, we got that. Before Jesus' offering, God would punish sin in sinful man in various ways. 
at the flood of Noah, for example, right? However, he didn't fully punish sin because if he had, then all humanity would have been destroyed, right? Every, all of sin and all fall short of the glory of God. If he fully punished sin in humanity, there would be no humanity. So he had various ways of dealing with sin until the coming of his son, all right? Um, instead, God passed over the sins and enacted a temporary system, not a permanent system. The law is obsolete. It's annulled. It's um, uh, obsolete, annulled, done and uh, done away with. It's, uh, yes, anyway, it's nailed to the cross, etc. It was temporary, okay? A temporary system of offerings through the nation of Israel to temporarily atone for their transgressions, okay? Everything about the law was temporary, and we've dealt with that already. One of them was the um, uh, right at the end of the book of Exodus when he says, I will sanctify Israel by my glory. And most people say, I will uh, most translations will say, I will sanctify the tabernacle, or some people, some translations say, I will sanctify the altar. They all missed it. It is, I will sanctify Israel by my glory. And we know that because in the book of Ezekiel, it explicitly says, I will sanctify Israel by my glory, okay? He sanctified them. They were set apart. They were in this covenant relationship, but it was a temporary thing. All of that was prefigured, even in the book of Exodus, okay? The law is done. It is done in Christ. He is our propitiation. He is our hilasterion, our place where God now is satisfied with, with us once again because of what Christ did. We are in Christ. The satisfaction is restored, okay? This system, the rituals in it, the items used in the rituals, every detail of them actually prefigures Jesus. If you have not watched the Exodus sermons, I know Tom doesn't like to use a computer, but all you have to do is click it on and go to YouTube. You don't have to go to anything else, and you can watch those, and you can learn every single detail of the, the tabernacle. And wasn't it marvelous? Wasn't it a marvelous study seeing what the gold and why there's a, you know, you're looking at the ark, and it says you were to make this ark and completely wrap it in gold. But it doesn't just say gold. It gives a descriptor. It says Zahab Tahor, gold pure. All the way around, and pure gold. The mercy seat would be Zahab Tahor. And then when he says you make the rings, he says you're to make them of gold. And it doesn't say Tahor. Why would he not say that? Why would he leave off the descriptor for the rings which are on the ark which the poles go through? And we talked about that. Every detail points to Christ. Everything. Even the lack of a word which is used in all the other things points to the Bible. It points to Christ. It points to what he is doing in human history. Everything. So that's, that's the lesson of, of these rituals and the symbols and the things that they used, okay? The entire picture of the Old Testament comes into focus when we look at it through the lens of who Jesus is and what he accomplished. It cannot be properly understood apart from him. We cannot understand it. Hence Jonah 4, right? Without Jesus, we would have no idea. As a matter of fact, Bob walked up to me after the sermon and he says, you know what? I know that that sermon is correct. And he says, you want to know why? He says, I've read Jonah my whole life, and it's made no sense to me. <laughs> and he says, now it makes sense to me. And he says, you know, I was so thankful for him for saying that. Just, you know, I just, oh, goodness. Okay, we'll give you a life application. We'll get on to our next verse. Um, as you read the Old Testament, it may seem unnecessary and outdated. Anybody feel that way sometimes? I mean, you read it, and you just think, oh, my but every word and every detail is noted and it has been specifically selected to show us the majesty of what God has done in and through the person of Jesus Christ. 
the New Testament does not stand alone. I'm so sorry for people that just stay in the New Testament alone. It must be evaluated based on what previously occurred. If you came to this verse today and you didn't understand the Old Testament symbolism of the Hillisterion from the old, right, the mercy seat, you'd have no idea what he's talking about. You'd say, well, Christ is a propitiation. You can get a, an idea of what God is talking about, but you can't understand the fullness of what God is saying. That that sacrifice that the high priest did once a year on the Day of Atonement, walking behind the veil and sprinkling this blood and doing the things which are now described in detail, I will forgive the people of Israel, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't make the sense unless you have the background of the Old Testament, right? It, it just doesn't. Take time to read and absorb the Old Testament so that you can properly grasp the significance of the new. Yes. The new is in the old concealed. Yes. The old is in the new revealed. revealed. That's exactly right. <laughs> the concealed and the revealed. And it's right there. It's all there for us to see. And that's why, you know what? That's why I believe Paul is the author of Hebrews. It doesn't matter, but I believe he is. And I, I'll give you a couple of reasons why in a second. But that's why the book of Hebrews spends all of that time citing the Old Testament. It spends all of that time trying to explain to people that didn't have the Old Testament. Here's what you need to know. Or, as we know, it's written actually to the end-time Jews who have never really gotten into any theology about Jesus. And now he goes back and he takes them to their own scriptures and he says, this is said here. And this is what's revealed here. And now you've got to carry this message on because the rapture has already happened, right? That's what's being relayed to us in the book of Hebrews. But um, one of the ways that we can know that Paul is, and the guy did a great study on this, is E.W. Bollinger. He went through all of Paul's 13 letters, and then he took the book of Hebrews, and he counted the number of times certain words were used. And the picture is actually incomplete unless you go to the book of Hebrews, and all of the numbers come out to uh, multitudes of seven when you add it. He did a massive amount of work. Okay, he has several reasons there. He's got other things. If you read up E.W. E. Bollinger's work on this, and it's in the book Number and Scripture, I believe. It may be the witness of the stars, but no, I think it's... What's it, is it? And he gives all of that information about why he believes that. But there's one thing that Peter says, which actually confirms, at least to me, that um, uh, Paul is the uh, author of Hebrews. As Peter says... Um, let me see if I can find this really quickly. It's either in one or two, obviously, because there's only one or two. But um, uh, let's see here. Two Peter, and he says, um, do not think it strange. And um, he's talking about Paul. And um, where is that? As our brother Paul says, um, um, it's, this will take just a second. All I've got to do is find the name of Paul in the book of uh, one or two Peter. And we'll uh, have the, uh, I'll, I'll give you the answer here. But since I'm talking about it, I want you to know it. So, um Oh, let's see, your uncorruptible things, even as our beloved brother Paul says. Wait, does anybody know where that verse is? Are you looking at one and two, Peter? And if somebody online knows, they're probably yelling at their, their screen right now. But um, uh, I can find it's it. It's probably 3.15. 3.15, okay, uh, let's see here. Um, uh, where is that? Oh, 2 Peter 3.15. Well, it helps to be in the right epistle. And I knew it was in... Okay, here we go. He says, verse 14, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blemish, and considering, consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written you. Well, who is he writing to? Peter is writing to... The, um, to those who have obtained the light, precious faith with us 
uh, righteousness of God our Savior Jesus Christ. He's writing to the Jews. He makes that more explicit in the first epistle when he says, um, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. But he's writing to the Jewish believers. And this is after the rapture of the church, these books come into play, but he says, our beloved brother Paul has written to you. He's write, writing to people that are Jews that are a part of the dispersion. Paul didn't write a letter to the Jews, did he? Unless it's, he's referring to Hebrews. And so it must be that Hebrews was written by Paul. And there you go. little clue for you. Doesn't mean it dogmatically, but it would make sense. Think again of the end times, okay? It would make sense that that letter would not be signed by Paul because if it was signed by Paul, then what? They dismiss it, just like they've dismissed his other 13 letters for the past 2,000 years. He's got this book of Hebrews. It's not signed. It's got all of this very deep theology about what we're talking about today, the Hilasterion and the mercy seat and all of these things. And the Jews will grab onto it and they'll say, wow, I never realized this. Why didn't my rabbi ever tell me this, right? End time stuff, okay? If his name was on it, they wouldn't read it. God is infinitely wise. It does seem that Paul is the author of this book, especially, like I said, that there and Bollinger's work, which really shows marvelous patterns. You need to Great read stuff. 16 and 1 with that. Great uh, verse 16. Go ahead and read it because I'm not there anymore. As also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things in which some yes. things are hard to be understood, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do the other scriptures. That's right. Like in the Trying to establish their own righteousness. I think that's ten four of right. Romans. You know, not and people, talking about it the way God wants them to do it. That's right. And they distort, they they tear apart, and it's referring to Romans, it's referring to Galatians, right. it's referring to everything Paul wrote, people want to distort. They want to say, Well, I know, you know, I watched this one guy out in Israel that was like I don't know, he calls himself a Christian, but he's always diminishing Paul. And he says, I know it says that the law is nailed to Christ, and Paul wrote that, but and he starts introducing these things. You've got to go back on the law again. And I'm thinking, that's exactly who Peter was writing about. That's exactly who he's writing about. He's saying, these people take what Paul has written, and they distort it as they do with all the rest of Scripture. Reintroducing the law, taking verses out of context. You know, I, I won't get into it because I'll just get angry. But people just, they, they love to tear apart Paul. And it, by doing that, they've torn apart the whole thread. Because Paul is referred to by a particular writer in great detail in the book of Acts, right? Who? Luke, right? And then Luke wrote one of the Gospels, so that's not valid anymore, right? And if Luke isn't valid, then guess what? Because Luke is repeated by uh, uh, Mark and by Matthew, now they're called into question. And guess what? If you've called into question Mark, now you've called into question Peter. And if Peter, the whole thing falls apart. You take out Paul, the whole thing unravels. Every single thing in the Bible is a unified whole. You take out one part, the whole thing unravels. So um, let's see here. Uh, did I read you the whole thing? Yes. Verse 326. Let's see here. Well, we got time. Um, to dem I'm, I'm going to go back and read the last verse again, just so we have it. Whom God set forth as a propitiation, a hilasterion, a mercy seat, by his blood, through faith, through faith, okay, to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed verse 26 to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus okay verse 326 as a demonstration of what has occurred in and through Jesus Christ Paul says at the present time 
This is the Greek word entonun chairo, and it is establishing a link to what was said in the previous verse. God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. The type of time Paul is speaking of is an ongoing movement of time, such as the running of the watch as it clicks forward. You got different, all kinds of different words for uh, time in the New Testament. Cairo, what does that sound like to you? Cairo. Cairo. Well, you got another one, chrono. What, what, chrono, that's a type of time. We have chronological. So you've got different types of time, Cairo. All right. Okay, so um, uh, God has passed over the sins. As time progressed, God often passed over the sins of the people without bringing judgment on them. This doesn't mean that God overlooked them, but that judgment was merely withheld. All sin will be judged, but out of his mercy and looking forward to the cross, he stayed his hand of punishment. I'm sorry, of judgment. During this time, as noted in the previous verse, God either didn't fully punish sin in men, or he withheld punishment through an impermanent system of offerings. This was enacted through the nation of Israel as a temporary system of atonement. Everybody understand that now. I've said it in the last verse. It's temporary. It was a system of atonement until righteousness was revealed in Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. He's the fulfillment of those things which can take away sin. Okay? It's impermanent. All right? Being temporary in nature, they only looked forward to something far, far better. This is the propitiation mentioned in verse 25. It is the shed blood of Jesus. Christ's offering at the present time, right now, demonstrates God's righteousness, looking back on those of the past and forward from the time of Calvary. Okay, so you've got the past, you've got uh, us now, everything comes into focus centered on the cross of Jesus Christ. Okay, this demonstration of his righteousness is that he might be just. That's what Paul says there, he might be just. What Paul is saying here isn't speaking of his benevolence, but rather that the integrity, the integrity of God's nature is in no way violated. In other words, if he did not judge sin, ultimately he has to judge all sin. If he doesn't judge sin, then he is not just, right? He's not righteous. He must judge sin. It's, think of it again. Bring it down to human terms so you can remember. You have a judge that is sitting on a bench. And we can use any one of them in California as a perfect example. To say. Somebody does something illegal, and that judge says, I'm not going to sentence you. I'm just going to let it go. As a matter of fact, we had a judge. I don't know if you heard about this one. I think it was in uh, Seattle. It was in Washington somewhere. And she actually was hiding an illegal a a immigrant, right? Is she a just judge? No. The law says that this person is a violator of the law. If they do not uphold the law, they are not just. And the people that see that understand that that person is not a just judge. The best example that I can think of, okay, it, it, it brings it right home to anybody. Everybody wants to let immigrants stay in America. Everybody wants to. But this immigrant comes to your house. He rapes your daughter and kills her, right? What do you want when that happens? Justice. You want justice. And if that person is taken to the courts and the judge says, this is a sanctuary city and that person can't be touched, you have gotten no justice. And that person died in an unjust way. Now that's a human argument and some people are so stupid they might actually say, well, my daughter doesn't deserve justice, right? 
but because we kill our own daughters and sons in the womb all the time. But you get the point is that when you have something violated, you go into that person's house and steal all of his stuff and say, well, this sanctuary city, you can't do anything to me. He's going to be upset, right? There is a point where everybody has a breaking point in their idea of justice. God has none. One infraction, no matter how small it is against his glory, must be judged. And if it is not judged, he's not God. It's not the just, righteous, holy, infinitely merciful, infinitely gracious God that we're dealing with. And we went through that. All of those things form a tension around God that can only be resolved in one way, and only one way, and that is through the cross of Christ, because his righteousness is demonstrated in Christ, and thus he is just. He is just, okay? That's what he's saying here. Um, what Paul is saying isn't speaking of his benevolence, but rather his integrity of nature, that it is no way violated. He remains just through the sacrifice of Jesus. There's nothing morally compromised, right? Because I've done something wrong, I've offended somebody else, I've offended God, but he's taken out his punishment in his own son. And he said, I will offer this in exchange for what you have done. Therefore, his justice is maintained. Nothing is violated in it, okay? That is why Paul says he is just, okay? This is the very, very, very heart of the gospel right here. This idea of God's righteousness and his justice not being violated. That's the heart of the gospel. That's why Jesus Christ is called the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It had to happen. It had to happen when you have a sentient being which is offended an infinitely righteous God. I say it almost every Sunday after the sermon. I say, we're here and we're going this way in time. The sin was committed back here, and we can't go back. We can't go back in time. Time travel is pretty cool. We've got all kinds of movies about it, but we still can't do it. We can't go back and undo what we have done. We cannot back, go back and undo what God, uh, what Adam has done against God, okay? And because of that, it must be judged. The heart of the gospel is that God says, I am going to send my son into the world to die to pay for your sins. That is what retains his justice and his righteousness, okay? So, um... God's perfect character is maintained, and yet fallen man is reconciled to him in the process. Go back to the last verse, the propitiation. It's reconciliation. It's, it's a happy relationship, once again restored because of Christ. Okay, that is what's happening. It is the highest point of the turning of the universe and to which nothing in the continuum of time could ever compare. Because everything in the stream of time, since the moment he spoke the universe into existence, everything turns on that one moment of Christ dying on the cross. Everything. I had somebody um, during a prophecy update a couple weeks ago. He emailed me and he said, um, he's from, I think, Canada. But anyway, he said, um, uh, I was talking about the Freedom of Religion Foundation taking down the cross all over and mandating this, taken out of this, this um, graveyard and taken down out of this city council. And you know what he sent me the next day? He said, I think that they are a tool of God being used by God because we've made the cross an idol. And I went back. I fired on him. I wasn't angry. I mean, I wasn't mean or anything, but I said, you have completely misunderstood what God has done. You have completely misunderstood. I said, all you need to do is go, and I gave him all the examples that I have on one page of my uh, old website of pictures of the cross how Israel forms a picture of the cross in the wilderness that goes on for miles. The cross is on the forehead of the people that mourn over the abominations of Jerusalem. The cross is in the first sentence of the Bible. God has the cross everywhere in the Old Testament. Pictures of the cross. That's the name of the page, I think, on my website. Pictures of the cross. They're everywhere. 
if God spent that much time to give us pictures of the cross of Jesus, I ain't taking my cross down from this church. Then I took a picture of my desk, that desk that I just got recently, and the very first thing I did was take a cross that Todd here made for me, and I put it right on the front of that desk, and it's going to be there when I die. I tell you what, that's going to stay right there. You walk into that door, it's the first thing you see. And what does Paul say in Galatians chapter 6? Let me read it to you. That guy completely misunderstood. The FRFF is an instrument of God to get away of the idolatry of the cross. He must be, he must, what are you thinking? Paul says God this. He says this in Galatians 6, 14. What's that? God forbid that I That's right. That I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You can't boast in something that doesn't exist. If it's taken down from every every courtyard and every city council and every uh, uh, grave in America, you can't boast in what isn't there anymore. We boast in the cross of Christ. I'm gonna. It, it's a banner to the nations. It's called in the Old Testament. It is the symbol of our faith. You take down a cross. As far as I'm concerned, you might as well just check out. Just go somewhere else because it is horrifying. Nobody is worshiping the cross. It's our reminder. We're looking to the cross to say, I remember what Christ did. Yeah, you know, I don't want to be angry at people. Did but he respond back? No, he didn't respond. Home. I, I, he he, not respond. a word. Not yeah. a word back. But And maybe he thought about it and it was okay. I wasn't angry at him. I didn't belittle him. I just said, you have come. You fundamentally misunderstood what God is trying to show us, if you believe that. That he would use these people that are so disgusting on the left to tear apart our Christian foundation in this nation and to say that that's an instrument of God? you got to be kidding me. Charlie, what is it that Paul says about the preaching of the cross if you're not preaching the cross? That's right. Um, uh, what verse is that? Hold on a second. Um, uh, it's what? Oh, yeah, that's right. The preaching of the cross is foolishness. That's exactly right. To those who are being, uh, that's a, uh, where is that verse? Anybody remember that? First Corinthians 2. First Corinthians 2. Let me read that really quickly. That's very good. Thank you. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Foolishness to those who are perishing. I, I, get me off on a tangent. First Corinthians 2, and he says, um, uh, well, we'll just start at... Um, uh, verse 1, and I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you except Christ and him crucified. Well, he wasn't crucified on a, you know, a circus tent. He was crucified on a cross, right? I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching was not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Um, let me go on down here. Um, uh, it's uh, da, 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 da. Oh, there it is. Okay, so we're going to go. No, that's not it. 14. it does, yeah, 14. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Okay, well, that's not specifically about the cross, and there is something else that he speaks about. But that's okay. You get the point, is that he was crucified on a cross. It's not an idol. It's the focus of our faith is that, you know, what does the Bible say in Hebrews 12 too? Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Right? Is Jesus here? Is he physically here where we can fix our eyes on him? No, we have to mentally think about Christ. And the way we do that, we've got reminders of it, right. what he did for us in the cross of Christ. I'm not talking about, you know, the Catholic Church gets a little into too much into crucifixes, you know, and they leave them up on the cross. And I know that... It, I'm not opposed to crucifixes. Some people are just vehemently opposed against them. You shouldn't have one. Christ came down from the cross. 
listen, the cross is a picture of what Christ did, and Christ on the cross is a picture of what Christ did. There was a moment in history when he was there, and that's what we're remembering. If you're worshiping that cross, it's a little bit different, right? But if you are just using that as a symbol of what he did, that's what God did all the way through the Old Testament. I'm going to do this thing. And then all the way through the New Testament, that's all they talk about is the cross, the cross, right? Behold the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, Jesus. Okay, let's go on. Um, let's see here. Um, what verse are we in? 326. Okay, just. I did that. He is just. All right. The integrity of the law is maintained through Jesus because he fulfilled the law. Further, because the law already gave the precedent of the doctrine of substitution, right? It's already in the Old Testament. They've got the doctrine there. It's an innocent animal in the place of man's sins. They would go and they'd put their hands on top of its head. They'd confess their sins over it. They'd uh, take the animal and they would cut its throat and out would come the blood and they'd do certain things with the blood. But that right there shows us that there is a precedent in the Old Testament, the doctrine of substitution. This animal is going to take the place of what you have done and I will forgive you of your sins for another year, excuse me. So the doctrine may satisfactorily continue on and be complete in the more perfect sacrifice of Jesus. In other words, t uh, type, anti-type, picture, fulfilled symbolism, okay? All of the moral character of God is seen on display in this one great act. Nothing is compromised, nothing is overlooked, and what occurred displays the absolute perfection of, the, of God's plan and the infinite wisdom that he possesses. I got to tell you what, anybody else that came up with a plan of redemption would not come up with what God did. We can look back on it and say, well, yeah, I see the perfection of it, but we wouldn't have taken that avenue. We'd take some other avenue. But to say, I'm going to send my son to die in your place, I can't think of anybody, you know, thinking of that, right? Especially that he's got to be a perfectly sinless son, right? Because people did the, the, the Molech thing all the time in the Old Testament. I mean, this kid is going to die in my place, and they missed the fact that the kid had sin. He inherited from him, from you, right? I'm talking about the father that sacrificed him anyway. And so everything about what Jesus did is just so marvelously perfect. It really is. It is just perfect. And not only is he just in this action, but he is also the justifier in what occurs as well. The one who retains his moral integrity through the giving of Jesus is also the one who has accomplished all things through him. It's one and the same. Apart from him, there can be no justification, and thus Jesus' words in John 14, 6 can be more clearly understood. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Why? Because he is just and the justifier, right? He is everything. He is everything. God has done everything. There's nothing else we can do except go through Jesus. And once again, another picture of eternal salvation. You can't lose what God has given you. No other avenue is available to be restored to the Father because no other avenue can maintain his integrity. Thus, what Jesus said about the narrow gate and the wide gate in Matthew 7, 13 is easily seen to be true. Jesus is that gate. And apart from him, there is only a wide wide highway to the narrow confines of hell. But through him is the avenue to the splendid and wide expanse of heaven's glory. All of the majestic wonder of this paradise is available in only one way, to the one, as Paul says, who has faith in Jesus. No Jesus, no heaven. 
You know what? I, I you, you go to these funerals where people are, they play that song, and it's a good song. I, you know, um, uh, come on, everybody knows that they sing it all the time nowadays in, in funerals. Um, uh, what will it be like? You know, I will I dance for you, Jesus? Oh, yeah. or, and oh. you get the most pagan person in the world that's lying in the coffin, and they play that song, and it's like. I can only imagine. I can only imagine. Thank you. Right? I mean, will I stand? Will I, you know, will I? And every I, I, every funeral you go to nowadays, you hear that song played. It's a great song, but the words don't apply to people. You know what I mean? I mean, you get these guys that I feel like just standing up and saying, you know, I wish the guy had listened to the words of this song first and, you know, really applied them. But anyway, I, I don't want to be judgmental there. It's just that God is the one that makes the decision, and he made it. It's in Jesus. So all of these other things that people say about he's in a better place and he's at rest and all that, man, if he didn't know Jesus, it ain't true. Oh, boy, it's so sad. Okay, the gospel is... Let me just ask you, how do you handle I got to tell you what, doing a funeral worse, you don't know if somebody is saved is one of the hardest things in the world to do. You can't say anything... You can't say anything. I'm not going to lie to people. And so, I, you know what? I, I, I just don't get into it. And I don't remember what I did at the last one. It was, um, uh, now there are, you know, I've done a, a couple of them. And I, I've never done a whole funeral by myself. I've talked at many funerals. Okay. And, and that's not true because I did one. I did one that was, um, uh, and I just remembered this. Um, one of our friends had a neighbor who was dying of cancer. And she said, would you come and talk to her? And I did, and the whole family received the Lord, right? And that was a really easy, it, she died just a while afterward. It wasn't long at all, but it was a really easy um, uh, service to do. It was, it, and I did it. That was the only one I've done by myself. And the thing is that everybody that knew this person, none of them knew that she had gotten saved. And I had to explain oh, wow. it to them. And, you know, there's people with rings in their noses and hair spiked all over the place and wow. and uh you know i hope that what i said they paid attention to because that person is in heaven right there's no doubt about it she is absent from the body present with the lord right whatever that means at this point yeah, yeah. it is it applies to her and there's no doubt about it she made a profession it was a it was a it wasn't just a, a false one but you know all these other people they had no idea about that and it was it took a while to explain and i was very careful but when i got done normally when you say would anybody like to say anything yeah. You, you get going and the ball never stops. I mean, everybody just starts talking and talking. And so anyway, nobody, nobody. not a single person, not a single person. So, uh, you know, it, it is, you know, but that's, that's what happens, you know, and they're all going to face their own t well, time of you, mortality. But so, you could have planted, she could have, through you, planted seeds. And that's what I hope happened. Yeah. And that's why I think nobody said anything is because Probably. they, they heard what I said yeah. and they, they didn't know how to, to process <laughs> it. So we'll hope that it was just one big thing full of seeds, but. We don't know that, right? Anyway, um, and I didn't even know the people. I mean, it's just I'm the only person they knew that would do the funeral for. So they asked me, would you do it? I'm like, okay. But okay. Um, anyway, um, let's see here. Uh, here we go. The, uh, speaking of exactly that, the gospel is so simple that people miss it time and time again. They trip over the stumbling block. Now, what is a stumbling block? What do you think of as a stumbling block? Because I get my own picture in my mind every time is when you're walking down a sidewalk and it's raised this much. It's just enough where you don't see it and you trip over it, right? If there's a block, that's not a stumbling block because you step over it or you step around it. But a stumbling block is something so simple and so unnoticeable that you trip right over it. And that's what the gospel is. It's a stumbling block. It's not 
something that you oh I you know I I, I see that I've got to climb up on it and I've got to, or I've got to walk around it because I don't want to be a part of it. People just trip right over it. They hear it. They hear it. it. You know that was me. That was I remember you listening to Hank Lindstrom for years, right? This guy, if I don't know, most of you probably know who Hank Lindstrom is. By the line, right? He was here in Tampa, and he was on the radio every day. And Mom told me this one time. Mm -hmm. Mom, my middle brother, and I all met the Lord within about a month of each other, independently of each other. We never talked to each other about. Yeah, crazy. But she listened to Hank Lindstrom day after day after day for probably years, right? And he said at least four hundred times during his half hour thing. You need Jesus. You need to be saved. He would go through the simple gospel. I, I, I can't tell you how many times he would say it in a 30-minute thing, okay? And years later, she said, I was standing there one day, and she said, I need Jesus. How many times did she hear that? She was at the church, raised us in that crummy church too, and right? And all of a sudden, she says, I need Jesus. That simple. She'd been listening to this guy for years, and all of a sudden, it's like, you know. Is Hank, is Hank the Bible answer, man? The yeah. The, no, no, hey, no. That's, that's Hank Hanegraaff. He's the Bible answer man, and he's got had some really funny ideas, that guy. I don't know if he's still on the radio or not. But yeah, no. Hank Lindstrom was King James only, and he had some goofy ideas, too, but he, he had one marked up Bible. He had, you know, the Bible line on TV, and they'd have the camera behind him looking down his Bible, and it was like, it was one marked up thing. He, he really loved the Lord, but, uh, what you know. What he said, Charlie, was it, what caught my attention. He said, free. Oh, it's free. It's, free. it's a gift. Mm-hmm. And that's what hit me. Oh, and he probably said that 8,000 times to you. Uh, I don't think so. Well, I don't know. Maybe not, but he was very consistent about giving you the gospel. And just a couple words he said one day, and she's like, oh, it's a gift. It's free. You don't have to earn it. You can't. Yes. Now, since we're chasing rabbits. That's okay. Rabbit trails are good. Atonement. Yes. You're saying it's for the next year. I always thought it was for the year then. Well, that's right. It, the, they had to offer sacrifices all the way through this. That's right. Then it cleansed them from this year that they had. That's right. The Day of Atonement. That's correct. But it lasted for a year, and they had to do it again the next year. It doesn't matter if it was forward or backward anyway. The point is that it was for a year. Okay. And it was just for a year, and after that, they had to do it again. The atonement only lasted for a year. And the next year, on the 10th day of the month of, uh, uh, the seventh month, um, anyway, Tishri, the month of, is it Tishri? Yeah, anyway, on the seventh month, which is the first month in the Bible, but it's the seventh month in the redemptive calendar, on the 10th day, they had to do that. Yes, month of Tishri, that's right. So, anyway, um, but yeah, it was only good for a year. And then they'd have to do it again. But you're right. That's correct. Okay, so um, the gospel is so simple that people miss it. It's a stumbling block. Describe that. Mom got over her stumbling block. The words of Paul here show the demarcation line. On one side are those who attempt to be justified by their own merits. And on the other side are those who depend on faith alone in the works of Christ Jesus for their salvation. Okay, that's it. There's only one of two ways. You're either going to work your way to heaven, and, you know, some people say, I'm, I'm going to be a good guy, or I'm going to do this, or I'm going to do that. Or even they think they're Christians, and they're, they're you know, I, I say my rosary, and I do this, and I do that, and they do it in a Christian context. They're still out. If they are trying to earn God's favor through deeds, they haven't received God's grace through Christ. It's one or the other. The demarcation line is faith and works. If that's it faith and works. There's one or the other, okay? So, you've got that, 
And um, uh, there's nothing that we can add to it, and there's nothing that can be subtracted from it. At one moment in the history of man, God did what was otherwise impossible, and he reconciled us to himself, not the other way around. Okay, we've got 15 minutes. Life application. God asks for faith in what he has done. Nothing else can satisfy our sin debt because nothing else can meet his perfect moral standard. Take time to reflect on the cross of Jesus. Understand that it alone is God's provision for your soul. Let him who boasts boast in the Lord. That's right, and in the glory of his cross. If we can just boast in the cross of Jesus Christ, we're in good stead with God. Okay, Galatians 6.14 again. I boast in nothing but the cross of the Lord Jesus by whom I am reconciled to God. And he means something like whatever. And I don't want to misquote it, but right back to Galatians 6.14. Okay, 3.27. We'll finish this one up and we'll be done um, for the day. Oh, it's the beginning of a new paragraph too. So uh, that's all right. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works. No, but by the law of faith. Okay, read it again. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, by the law of faith. Okay, continuing on with this humbling line of thought, and it is a new paragraph, by the way, Paul shows us the greatness of God, both innate greatness and that which he bestows upon us. He asks, where is boasting then? He uses, the term he uses here is, hey, cow chesis, or how there is no ch sound in the Greek, so it would be chesis. Indicates glorying in something or reveling in something. It is equated with, see what I have done. Paul wants us to think it through. What will we glory in when we come before the Lord? This Greek term can be used in a negative way, such as in achievements to glory in self, or in a positive way, gratitude for his work, and thus glorying in the Lord. So it can go either way. So where is our boasting? Paul says, speaking of us, it is excluded. There can be no merit when something is accomplished by faith in something else or in someone else's work, right? In fact, to make a personal boast in oneself when they haven't done anything would be the epitome of stupidity and also arrogance, right? Jesus Christ did the work and we say, gee, look, and I get to come before God the Father because of what I did. He did the work. All we're doing is putting faith in what he did. It's not a work. People say that faith is a work, and therefore you have to be regenerated in order to believe. And Paul will later in the book of Romans blow that one out of the water. Okay? As a matter of fact, he blows it out here as well. Two, but 2.23 here says, who, who boasts in the law, though you're through your breaking the law, right. you dishonor God. That's right. You dishonor God. You dishonor God through the breaking of the law. Yeah. And all are lawbreakers. We have nothing that we can come before the Lord with, except empty hands and a grateful heart. Nothing. There is nothing. It is all boasting in the Lord and nothing else, okay? So, um, uh, all boasting is excluded, and to make sure we comprehend the reason, we're given two more questions to ponder. He says, by what law? Of works? The idea of law here is one of economy, okay? The Jew was under the economy of the Mosaic law. The Gentile was under the economy of the natural law. We talked about that in Romans chapter 1, okay, and 2, all right. Um, where was that? Is, is the Jew able to boast before God based on fulfilling deeds of the law of Moses? No. Day of Atonement excludes that one. 
Paul has shown that the law only further brought condemnation. Once there's law, there's a knowledge of sin. Once the law is introduced, then you realize the sin that you have in you. If there's no law, there's no sin, right? If, you, if God did not say to Adam, <coughs> you can eat of anything in the garden except this one fruit. If he didn't say that, could they have eaten of the fruit? Yeah, and they wouldn't have done anything wrong. Right. It was the law that brought the knowledge of sin. And when you break the law, then sin is realized, okay? So without a law, there can't be any sin. And that's what's important. That takes us right back to what I talked about earlier. Remember what it said, that God is not counting men's sins against them, right? We're in Christ. God has reconciled the world to us. He's not counting men's sins in him. Are we under law? No. Therefore, we cannot sin. There is no law to bring about the, the sin in us. The law is dead. He's not counting sins against us. Now, we have a new law. Don't get me wrong. I'm talking about the law of Moses, which stands opposed to us. All right? We have a new law, and that law says that what you do and don't do will be counted as rewards and losses. It never says for condemnation. Never. It is only for salvation and judgment based on what you've done, okay? God is not counting men's sins against them, okay? If there's no law, there can be no violation of the law. The law is dead in Christ. We are in Christ. The law is dead to us. Okay, so um, where was that um, uh, economy I said? Okay, Paul has shown that the law only brought further condemnation. How can someone boast in salvation from something that condemned them? How can they do that? And the same is true with the natural law of the Gentile. Can a philanthropist stand before God and said, see what I did? You owe me big time? Think of Bill Gates, right? Yeah. No. All are bound under sin, both inherited and those committed in the body against the law, whatever law it is. Bill Gates cannot say, you owe me. It does not matter how much he gives of his body. What does Paul use in the uh, 1 Corinthians 13, if I give my body to the flames? You can do anything. You can do anything you want. It will never bring you closer to God without Jesus Christ. Nothing. Okay? Boasting isn't excluded by works. It is excluded by the law of faith. This law or economy says that in order to please God, we must have faith in what God has done. Right? If God has accomplished all of the works, then how can we boast of having done anything at all? It's ludicrous to think that we somehow merit any favor in our salvation. None. And faith is not a work. Okay? We'll get to that eventually, but faith is not a work. The idea that reformists and Calvinists that, well, if you exercise faith, then it's a work and you've done something and therefore you can boast before God. No, Paul excludes that in the book of Romans. We'll get to that. Anyway, one, Jesus came from God, okay? Two, Jesus was born without sin, sin okay? Three, Jesus fulfilled the law that no one else could fulfill. Everybody agree that we can't fulfill the law, right? Okay, four, Jesus was crucified for our sins, okay? Five, Jesus was raised for our justification, Paul says. And six, Jesus will return for us, and through him we will be glorified, okay? That's all taught right here in the book of Romans. Therefore, seven, to God be the glory. Not to us, but to God. Everything that is laid out in the book of Romans centers on Christ and what God has done through him. To God be the glory. Let our boasting not be in self, but in the Lord. 
As Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31, which I think we just read that, didn't we? One, we'll read that again, though. 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31, which says, um, 30 and 31, it says um, that no, let me go back to uh, 20, uh, 28, and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring nothing to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that as it is written, he who glories, that's right, let him glory in the Lord. It's all a work of God. It's all in Christ. Wonderful stuff. Okay, life application and we are done. When we came before the Lord, it was as poor beggars who had nothing to offer. And yet, he crowns us with eternal splendor and glory, a gift fitting the highest noble or the greatest king. This is grace. This is God's unmerited favor to those who, by faith, reach out to him. Make it your goal today to truly boast in the Lord and put aside any thought of having merited his favor, because you haven't. All right. The only Hebrews way you merit 11, God's favor is because of what Christ did. Hebrews yes. eleven six. Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it's impossible. Without to please faith, him. that's right. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him, and that's what Adele she quoted that one here herself when she was giving her testimony two weeks ago. Wonderful verse to remember. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him, and because it's of faith, we can't boast in our own deeds. Let Him who glories glory in the Lord. Doctor, would you close us in prayer tonight? Our loving, gracious Heavenly Father, it's just a joy to come together and study your word. Lord, we especially thank you for taking our sins upon yourself mm -hmm. when we believe. Thank you in exchange for giving us your righteousness. Lord, we look forward very soon to return, taking us. Lord, we thank you. Amen. Amen. Okay, let me back this baby up and uh, we'll say goodbye to him. Let's see here. We're going to go to break. There we go. Okay, everybody have a wonderful week. We love you. See you again next week for one hour instead of an hour and a half. Okay. What's this? Uh... That's Jeremiah's it's a lot of good footnotes. Yeah. I just got this. I just came right five minutes before I came here. Oh, I like the big print. Yeah, what color? This is in AFP. We got one at home in school. Where did you buy it? This? Yeah. Christian book, but I got it from the Lockman Foundation. It's theirs. Oh, okay. The ones that did the Amplified. And so you haven't bought your Bible yet? No, the Christian book, uh, they're out of Peabody, uh, New Hampshire, or uh, Connecticut, I think. Pat, you doing okay today? Good. I'm glad you're doing better, because I know that was a tough couple weeks for you. <gasps> Horrible. Just terrible. Ugh. You and Sasha and uh, Mabel, I was so worried about because I know what I went through. And I'm 20, 30 years younger than you. I, I, uh, I don't know. I, 